The views expressed on this podcast are those of the participants, not of Reuters News. Welcome to the Exchange Podcast. I'm Rob Cox, global editor of Reuters Breaking Views. To mark the 10-year anniversary of the collapse of Lehman Brothers and the near-death spiral it caused in the international financial system, we are presenting a series of interviews with policymakers, regulators, and bankers who are caught up in that maelstrom a decade ago. Give a listen to 10 Years After. On the same day Lehman Brothers went into bankruptcy, Merrill Lynch sold itself to Bank of America. Greg Fleming, then the president of the firm known as the Thundering Herd, was the architect of that deal. Though it arguably saved Merrill from a similar fate as Lehman, it was controversial in its own ways. Greg is now leading a new financial services venture with a name synonymous with American wealth, the Rockefellers. Here's my chat with Greg Fleming. Greg, everybody's sort of thinking about the anniversary of the crisis, but everybody has a slightly different idea of what the anniversary was, right? So for many people, it is Lehman Brothers going bust. For others, it's actually, I don't know, uh, HSBC complaining about uh, problems in the mortgage business in, you know, almost a year and a half before Lehman. It's for some, it's Bear Stearns. How do you, what's sort of ground zero or, you know, minute zero for the crisis uh, in your mind? The moment uh, in the crisis that I'll always remember is when we announced the sale of Merrill Lynch to Bank of America, which was late the night of September 14th or early the night, the morning of September 15th, which is, it was basically contemporaneous that was the, the weekend for Lehman. For bankruptcy. Right. Yes. Lehman and filed on that night morning, whatever you want to call it, Monday morning before the markets opened. And, and actually, some of the newspapers had it. They had both. So they had a huge headline, I don't know where, Journal Times somewhere, mm-hmm. that Lehman had filed for Chapter 11 bankruptcy. Merrill Lynch sold to Bank of America. And then I think the third huge block headline was AIG in trouble. So it was all convulsing on that morning of September 15th. And uh, we had spent the prior 72 hours working to sell Merrill Lynch to Bank of America. My colleagues and I hadn't slept for three or four days. And I remember just waking up Monday morning and it seemed like the world was shaking. Right, right. I'll never forget, and this was on Sunday, September 14th, uh, that I I had gone, I was staying in New York. And as I said, we hadn't really slept in three or four days, given everything that was going on and the sense that opening markets on Monday the 15th was going to be challenging. By the way, nobody knew how challenging right. once Lehman filed for Chapter 11. But I had gone to this hotel I was staying in to take a shower. We had been working on diligence with Bank America all night. Uh, and I'm walking back from the hotel to where the diligence was occurring, which was at a law firm in Midtown, Wachtell Lipton. Okay. We were on one floor. And uh, Bank of America was on another. And the streets were quiet, and it was 5 in the morning, and it was starting to, you know, people were starting to uh, uh, come out. And I was thinking to myself, if this negotiation didn't go well, and I overreached or somehow it didn't come together, Merrill Lynch had been around for 95 years. It had 65,000 employees. There were almost 2 million shares outstanding, shares in, in mutual funds that ordinary people were invested in, it would be something that would live with me and for many forever. And the, the pressure of that, the impact of that, as I'm taking that walk, I'm thinking uh, this is a moment you're never going to forget, and I never will. Though you had done this uh, extraordinary deal to sell Merrill Lynch to Bank of America, 
it was just the beginning of the roller coaster. Yes, in fact, uh, the impact on markets from there, and and people sometimes ask me, Rob, what uh, what really happened in the credit crisis? And these might be people who aren't necessarily finance industry people. And I, I explained that it really was a um, the breakdown of the wholesale funding model, and explain that as not bank deposits and not retail investors, but uh, institutions that would provide capital to investment banks and enable them to be levered 20 to 1, 30 to 1, 40 to 1. That model was eroding fast throughout the end of 2007 and 2008. But when Lehman filed for Chapter 11 bankruptcy and lenders of all kinds, you know, repo, prime brokerage, all the ways that investment banks were funded by lenders, it came to a screeching halt because lenders said, wait a minute, these organizations actually could go out of business and I won't get paid. Right. Uh, and the wholesale funding model literally started to dry up as soon as Lehman, dry, the remainder started to dry up after Lehman filed for Chapter 11. So things got progressively worse, as you know, for the rest yeah. of 08 into 09. Remember the S&P bottomed out in March of 09, 666. Barack Obama's great call. If you remember, he said to buy the the, uh, the, yes. the stock market. Yeah. It, it was literally the moment it hit its bottom. Actually, uh, whatever you want to say about that call, he, he did <laughs> time it right. literally at bottom. But in January or February of 09, we lost, the country lost over 700,000 jobs in one month. Uh, so if anything, the peak of the of the pressure in the financial markets and in the general economy was six months later yeah. from that September 15th date. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but if you, were, uh, if you were part of Merrill Lynch, the date that you'll always remember is the date that yeah. we sold this 95-year-old firm at the time to Bank of America, and it was no longer an independent firm. Well, I want to go to the, the post that, that those few months of that interim before the deal closed, which I thought was also pretty nerve-wracking. It must have been for you guys. But also before, I mean, you know, you had um, been at, at the firm for, for quite some time. You had been running investment banking. And, and then you were propelled into the role of, of uh, co-president. Um, it must have been clear that something was going on inside the organization because it was, you know, there was capital raising. Uh, John Thame was brought in as CEO, if I remember, when they when Stan O'Neill was knocked out. You, you know, you weren't in, you were in the investment banking, corporate advisory, that business. But it was when you became the president. What did you see when you said, "Oh, well, we got we opened up those books with all the mortgages that had been originated but not um, actually sold or distributed"? What was your? Th were you starting to realize then? Oh man. Well, uh, I was named co-president, I believe it was in May of 2007. And if you ask me when, uh, at, on a larger basis, away from Merrill Lynch, the credit crisis really started to become apparent, it was over that summer. I remember being That's on a holiday in August of 2007, yeah. being on holiday in August of 07, and coming back. And people throughout the finance industry were starting to say, wait a minute, there are major cracks in uh, the credit markets and in particular in the mortgage market. And Merrill had in the prior 12 months, dating back actually to an event that you all noted, which was when Jeff Kronthal was fired uh, as head of fixed income trading in the That's summer right. of 2006. At that time, 
there was approximately $5 billion in CDO exposure at Merrill Lynch. And when uh, the credit crisis really started picking up momentum in August and September of 07, there was 70, 75 billion. They had really ramped it in that time frame after Cronthal was gone. And I think you made Cronthal one of the unsung heroes of the credit right. crisis. So uh, the industry started really feeling it in August, September, October. The write-down started in, in October. We had one. I think there were, after one or two write-downs, you know, Stan O'Neill left as CEO, and there was a search looking at internal and external candidates, but no question they were going to bring in somebody from the outside at that point. Um, and they brought in John Thane. Uh, you know, Larry Fink was a candidate that was much talked about. But they, uh, they brought in John Thane, and John and I and the senior executive team, from mo the moment John got there, uh, spent uh, the next nine, ten months, I think John arrived in December of 07, right. raising capital. Right, you got to, the Kuwaiti Investment Authority. You got it. I mean, you we had seven Singapore. Yeah, yeah, we had capital raising all over yeah. the world. We, we, uh, we had um, mandatory convertible we raised. We raised Common. We had Tomasek. Uh, we, were, we raised capital in December. We raised capital again over the summer. We sold back to Bloomberg the last 20% right, that we owned in Bloomberg. We announced that in July of 08. Uh, we had negotiated that in literally weeks. Uh, Steve Ratner uh, did the negotiation for, for, Mike. Um, for Mike. And despite all that, we, we raised somewhere between 25 and $30 billion in new capital turning almost the entire capital base of Merrill pre-crisis. So the capital right. base was roughly $30 billion. We, we basically raised almost that much again and still needed to, because of the growth of that CDO book, sell to Bank of America in September of 08. What is it that, that makes the system safer now so that a bank like a Merrill or, you know, uh, take your pick, wouldn't get into that trouble today? Or it, are there such, is it capital rules? Is it just more vigilant supervision? Um, better managers who've been through the, who went through the crisis? I mean, how do you, or do you think that actually we're storing up similar problems? Well, I, I'd give uh, a, a direct answer and then we should talk about yeah. storing up problems. But uh, the industry is much better capitalized. So capital ratios are much higher. You could not be levered. You weren't I mean, 20 to one. 20, no. yeah. it wasn't even 20, it was right. 30, 40 to one in some, right. with some firms. Uh, so capital ratios are much higher. The, the profile of the way that firms think about conducting business is different. So risk appetite is much more constrained. And the government had something to do with this with some of the legislation, but more it was with the amounts of capital you have to hold for the riskier activities, people do less of them. Right. In fact, in, and in so some, your returns are lower and you don't want to be in that position. And, and Rob, in, in some cases, it's not necessarily the right thing for the overall health of the financial system. This gets to risk. If you look at the corporate bond market today, uh, it's roughly two times the size it was in 07, and dealer inventories are uh, a, a fifth or a, a tenth of what they were. The amount of liquidity behind the corporate bond market is much less. So if you talk about risks that are embedded going forward, there, there always are new ways that risk can be reflected in a financial of course, system. In that case, the, the less liquidity hasn't seemed to have been a huge problem at the moment. I mean, corporations aren't lacking for cash. It's that crunch moment, right, where the, the spread, the, the, the bid-ask spread gaps way out. Of course, even though you had lots of dealers at the time, it wasn't like they were taking the risk themselves in, in sort of reducing that spread. No, but costs. you're spot on, though. It's the crunch moment. Yeah. Because the, the, 
the widespread opinion, and that's another lesson learned, which is conventional wisdom, the notion that somehow this time it's different. I'm constantly saying that to people who might be newer, younger in the industry, mm -hmm. that whenever you hear this time it's different or everybody's going down that track, you want to pause. Because in 05 and 06, there was a notion that liquidity was so widespread and there was so much capital and liquidity around to invest in in a broad cross-section of instruments that uh, it would always be there. And to the point you just made, at the very moment it started to come unwound in, say, August of 07, liquidity didn't just uh, pull back. It virtually evaporated. Yeah. And the notion that you could sell uh, CDOs backed by subprime mortgage collateral was obliterated. Uh, literally almost overnight to m most of the industry's mm. players. Mm. So at almost no price could you unload some of these securities uh, when 12 months later, many people in the industry thought there was almost unlimited liquidity and why would it ever go away? I, I heard people say that. Right, right. Well, of course, 10 years before the 10 years ago, we had LTCM. It was August, September of, of, of 1998. LTCM went bust after the Russian default. Banks, including banks you work for, got together and created a consortium to kind of ensure that the inventory of LTCM, which was like, you know, they were they were even higher uh, leverage, right, than almost any of these banks, wasn't just dumped on the market and so that you'd have some orderly liquidation. It's kind of funny that that lesson, I'm not sure we, you know, that, that any lesson was learned from that 10 years later. And here we are 20 years. Well, in the scale of it, I mean, that was a single hedge fund and the positions were big, uh, but uh, it, it was controllable and, and the, the broker-dealer community could step in and unwind it on a, on a, on a basis that, that made some sense. And Merrill Lynch did play an instrumental role in that. Ba I, Bear Stearns and, and Lehman refused. Do you remember that? I do. I do. I mean, I wasn't directly <laughs> Kind involved, of funny, right? I, a little ironic. Yeah. But um, look, let's go back a bit to, 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 to 2008. You've done the deal. You've sold... Um, and that morning you wake up and the markets, of course, are still blowing up. You have a few months to get through regulatory approvals, shareholder approvals, which was not an inconsiderable um, uh, uh, issue. I mean, if, if I remember, I actually remember writing a column basically arguing why Bank of America shareholders should take one for the team and close the deal with Merrill Lynch because it was not a foregone conclusion they would. Um, you had the bonus. the bon you, you guys had the, I mean, well... well negotiated, uh, Greg. The bonuses were paid to Merrill employees, but B of A employees not, were not happy about that. What was that next few months before the close like? Yeah, and I do want to make sure we come back and talk about what a great deal Merrill Lynch has been for Bank of America over the course of the 10 years, because it got a lot of attention at the time, and there were clearly some real challenges. But I think Merrill Lynch has been transforming for Bank of America from where I sit in many ways. And uh, the uh, yeah, endurance yeah, I mean, of the brand inarguable, I yeah. think. But at that moment, but at the time, it was not it was, right. It was it was it was scary. At the time well, you for know, them. for them, and, and frankly, Rob, um, uh, the 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 severity of the response to Lehman, and the continued deterioration in credit markets and in the position of major financial institutions. And you remember the Fed stepping in at some point and saying they would regulate uh, the two remaining investment banks. This, the, the, the fact that that kept going and getting hard, you know, more and more severe, I think that took everybody by surprise. Mm -hmm. Remember in Paulson's biography, he talked about you know, praying. So when we got 
when we had finished negotiating the sale of Merrill Lynch to Bank of America, which we did, I can tell you, after 17 years there, and I was the president at the time, and it was a firm I thought I would spend 40 years at, and it was a firm that I, I was a huge proponent of. Sure. The business mix, the culture, the employees. So it was bittersweet. But when we finished that, we thought, okay, we're in safe hands now. We, you know, the wholesale funding model is under huge pressure. But Bank of America is a major retail bank, the largest huge bank. Taking huge deposit taking. By the way, another irony, in the late 90s, people were talking about how retail banking was you know, a thing of the past. People weren't gonna, going to go into branches. Some banks sold their retail bank and moved into other businesses. Mm -hmm. And there in 2008, what was the, the most highly prized asset? Retail deposits and the strength and stability that brought. Backed by FDIC, there were no runs on the bank. So that put Bank of America and yeah. big uh, retail banks in a great spot. So we thought we had done what we needed to do and we had taken this wonderful firm and put it in safe hands. Over the next three or four months, it was scary for everybody, including for Bank of America. So, uh, yeah, I was relieved um, that the transaction went through when it finally closed uh, the first day or two of 2009. Right, and then and then you how, you, you left pretty much a day or two later. A day or two later, you uh, you did a little thinking and teaching. Teaching, yes. Uh, I went yeah. back to Yale Law School where I graduated 20 years earlier. Right, and and. Then you went to Morgan Stanley. You ran the wealth management business there. Yeah, and the asset management business. The asset management. I mean, it's kind of interesting because you went to these a low capital intensivity business, a business that does not depend on you know wholesale funding or the Federal Reserves or you know all of the various things that that, that we learned from the crisis. Um, and now you're doing your your entrepreneurial venture at Rockefeller's is also wealth management. How, I mean, how did the the, the crisis? going through that and what you learned about the business, financial services business, how did that shape you know, the, the, your career path directionally? It, it had a major impact uh, on the career path, Rob. Now, I had come out of investment banking uh, and at Merrill, leading up to being president, I had run investment banking, private equity, capital markets. So I was in that side of the firm by training. And I, I did a lot of investment banking and provided a lot of advice to financial institutions, so I knew the space very well. But I always linked these businesses that were lower capital intensive and tied to advice to clients, which here we are in 2018, remains one of the most prized assets in any financial services company, advice to clients. So, uh, uh, and, and it's one of the reasons why I, I, it, it was bittersweet for me that Merrill Lynch did not remain independent through the crisis because Merrill had that business mix mostly. Indeed and had moved off into bigger fixed income trading and riskier fixed income trading in the years, the few years before the credit crisis. But it had been a big wealth management firm, investment bank, asset management. We started adding private equity. Those businesses were the businesses that came through the credit crisis in the best form. But we did add in the earlier, you know, in the five years before the credit crisis, a lot of this fixed income exposure and it caused us to have to sell it to Bank of America. But I always liked that business mix. It was one of the things that attracted me to Morgan Stanley. They were putting the same business mix together, and it's done a great job for I mean, they, Morgan they, Stanley. They got Smith Barney from Citigroup out of the whole crisis, didn't they? They did. That was a great deal, and now they've got a scaled, high-quality wealth management uh, arm. Higher market cap than Goldman Sachs. And it's the business mix. Yeah. When you look out, you know, sort of think about all the lessons we may have learned or the things we've put into, um, into legislation, 
are you comfortable that we're not going to go down another 2008 crisis? Um, what gives you what gives you hope that there if we're not? And on the other side, if you disagree that you think we are still storing up problems, what is it that you think we should focus on? You know, I think that a lot of the things that happened in that crisis have been effectively addressed either by markets or by regulation has helped in places so that these these financial institutions, as we talked about, capitalize very differently, very different mindset. But the, 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 the risk that Im it was embedded in the credit crisis and existed in a smaller way in 98 and exists today and will always exist is uh, things going too far uh, with human beings in a cycle. Um, and uh, what causes pain when the cycle turns? And uh, you know, who are the institutions, industries that are most exposed to that? And it's always hard to see in advance what that is, but the, the notion of the fact that the cycle still matters, because we're, you're hearing some of it now, which yeah. is, well, we're late in the cycle here, and it's the longest recovery in post-World War II era, which I think is true next February, but the growth rates until now were lower than ever before, so this could go on longer. Um, you know, we've got uh, a uh, fiscal situation that in a rising rate environment, uh, you know, is a, is a risk. We've got plenty of geopolitical risk. I talked to you about liquidity in yep. a much bigger corporate bond market, which nobody's going to talk about until things start to change, yep. and then all of a sudden that might matter. Then they'll be screaming about it. Not yeah, so, so the, the uh, cycles matter. Conventional wisdom is often wrong. Things tend to uh, keep going beyond where they should in both directions. We saw this in 09 when they went down too far, where President right. Obama is then saying, hey, this is likely to be the bottom. So that part of human beings, reinforced by globalization and technology, will always create risks. And the question is, where do they bubble? And one of the positives in terms of the leadership uh, in the financial industry and maybe in business writ large in this country and maybe around the world is the sense that things can go wrong that is still embedded because it's only 10 years after this credit crisis. Right. It was a unique event in post-depression United States. It hadn't happened, something like that, since the Great Depression. Mm -hmm. So uh, while those memories are there, uh, we're likely to be vigilant about excesses being created and where they could pop. But 10 or 20 or 30 years from now, when human those, beings people tend forget to, about the pain. Yeah, and the, and the people who were in it are telling the stories to their grandchildren instead of uh, you know you and I talking about it here. Yeah, well I know you and I will be talking about this. We will for be the talking about our careers, but thanks for coming in. Greg. You're welcome, Rob. It's great to see you. Thanks for listening to the latest episode of our 10 Years After Exchange podcast series. This podcast was produced by Ben Kellerman. If you haven't already, please sign up on iTunes and anywhere else you satisfy your audio cravings for The Exchange, The Views Room, and other Reuters podcasts. You can also check us out at BreakingViews.com and on Twitter at BreakingViews and at Rob1Cox.